Just a quick moment to say a big thank you to my sponsor for this episode, Drowsy. Anyone who suffers from anxiety or stress will know just how detrimental poor sleep can be to your well-being. I, like you, know that a good night's sleep is profoundly healing and can really improve the quality of your life, which is why I've invested in a drowsy sleep mask, as it guarantees that I'm going to wake up feeling great. I know what you're all thinking. It's just a sleep mask. But I can tell you it's unlike any sleep mask I've ever used. It has transformed the quality of my sleep. I'm sleeping better than ever before, in total darkness, and rarely wake up during the night. It's made from padded silk, which wraps around your head, and I can't tell you how heavenly it feels. And I don't wake up with any horrible skin creases or puffy eyes. You can't put a price on being able to sleep well every night, and it's reassuring knowing that whatever day you've had, you can go home and wrap yourself in drowsy and drift off. So if you're in need of the best night's sleep ever, Drowsy is the answer. Head to drowsysleepco.com and use the code JULIA for 25% off of any of their sleep accessories today. That's drowsysleepco.com, D-R-O-W-S-Y, and use the code JULIA, J-U-L-I-A, for 25% off. Hello and welcome to season two of the Therapy Works podcast, the podcast that confronts some of life's biggest challenges. I'm your host, Julia Samuel, a mother of four, a best-selling author, and as you might have guessed, a psychotherapist. Each week I'll invite you into my therapy room, where I will be joined by a well-known voice or an unknown voice who will open up about a particular struggle they have faced or are still facing. My mission is to expand our understanding of therapy and prove that meaningful conversations, which may contain difficult emotions, can be profoundly healing. I am really thrilled that you've joined me, Susanna Constantine. And you're going to talk about your incredible new book, Ready for Absolutely Nothing, and about your life and your early life. And I really kind of want to get into that. I don't know whether you like being known as a novelist and a journalist and a broadcaster and a podcaster, or as the person that drives their children around, does the laundry. I'm both those. I'm more the latter. I've now kind of done full circle and I am a working mother. I'm a working mother and housewife is what I am, who happens to write a sodding good book at the same time. You have written a sodding good book. I love this book. It's so honest and raw and powerful. And I can see myself in it. I can see my friends in it. And most importantly, I guess I really connected to you in it. So for this pod, my first question completely relates to your book, Mm. is what is the greatest challenge you have faced or are facing? That's a very good question. Where do I begin? I think it's probably learning to like myself is the greatest challenge. So that's the overarching (laughs) learning to like myself. Yeah. It's going from... I have no idea who I am. When I was a child, couldn't have no idea. No one else cares who I am. And I don't mean that in a pity, poor me way, because this, this memoir is not a misery memoir. It's full of joy. It's hilarious. But so having gone from uh, not even questioning who I was and then going through my alcoholic years, I then became Trini and Susanna. I wasn't Susanna. And Trini wasn't Trini, we was Trini and Susanna. And then losing that and coming out the other side, drinking alcoholically, and then coming out of that and then thinking, who the fucking hell am I? And what this book has really helped on a selfish level is to discover that there are still a lot of questions to be answered. And I think we all have that. And, you know, trying to find out. So, because I don't think you can change anything in your life 
unless you really know who you are. You can't change other people. You can't change your relationships with other people if you have bad relationships, if you have good relationships that you want to become better. You've got to change yourself to do that. Because what I get from what you're saying is, and from the book, is you couldn't know yourself because what was modelled around you didn't see you and know you because they didn't know themselves. Exactly. And so from very early relationships, your primary relationships, your mum, she was, uh, you know, you said in the book she died before she died. Yeah. And that she, you know, she had bipolar and she used alcohol and drug, you know, um, was it prescription drugs? Yeah, prescription drugs. Yeah. To anesthetize herself. And so they were constantly putting on a show and you could never connect to them. And that meant they never connected to you. So I guess all you've known is how to put on a show and putting on a version of yourself that would please other people. So you've put that so succinctly. Oh my God, I so need a therapy session right now. This has come at the right moment. Um, but that's exactly it, Julia. That's exactly it. And I've, I think I've been performing all my life. And I have said that, but I haven't really understood why I said that. And I think, you know, alcohol was part of that because I was, I was becoming someone that essentially wasn't me. You know, I wasn't someone who was happy being on television and being not scrutinized. I don't think we were ever scrutinized because we loved what we did. But it was a performance. My life has been a performance. And now I don't feel I have to perform anymore. And getting sober has given me freedom. Getting sober has given you freedom. Because the, mm. I guess the the aspects and the energy we use to hide what we don't know. But I think the not knowing, the bits that we fear are really disgusting or that there's something wrong with us that other people will step away from. So we work so hard to put on the shiny versions of ourselves. Also for ourselves, because we don't want to know these dark sides of ourselves. And it sounds like paradoxically... What you're saying, I can see you shaking your head. Interrupt me. No, it's so true. No, it's so true. Because what it is, is that how you feel about yourself, you know, how I was feeling about myself, which was shame, guilt, things I felt all my life, even, even when I was, you know, before I was drinking alcoholically. And I assumed that everyone else felt the same way about me. So if I hate myself, I just, not hate, that's a very harsh word, but, you know, if I was disappointed with myself or thinking I had to try harder or um, I couldn't be lazy, I couldn't do, you know, I had to be doing, 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 I assume that that's what everyone else thinks too because you put your own feelings onto those you love the most. And, you know, I put a lot of grief on my husband, Steen, because of this, blaming him until eventually I realized it's actually, it was me. And there was huge liberation in finding that out because that's when the penny dropped, when I thought, okay, if I can change myself, I can make things so much better. Because when you projected onto him how you felt about yourself, it was this awful circular loop that you were furious with him for mm. what you had projected and you couldn't receive what he was genuinely giving you. So true. And you couldn't take it in. So you stayed hungry. Yeah. And with all of your needs, your need for connection, for love, and for affirmation, like I'm okay who I am. You know, mm. a definition of being loved is being known as you are. And you never felt mm. known as you are. So I guess, you know, my second question is, what was it about that experience of not knowing yourself that was particularly difficult? I think it was being afraid. I think that's what it was because I was in an alien situation for the person I really was. And I think that bore fear. It sounds like you're surprised as you're saying alien situation, like you kind of haven't said it like that before. No, a, a lot. I mean, you are just light bulbs are popping off in my head. Although I've written about all this, you put it in a way, in your way, in Julia's way. And I'm going to be listening back to this podcast <laughs> over and over again. Um, but it's exactly spot on. You've hit the nail totally. Because with the fear comes so much other 
horrible shit. Mm. To, you know, we, you and I both like swearing. Yeah. Because fear means you have to arm yourself against yourself and others because you fear that you're going to get hurt. But it also means that you look at life as a place of danger. And fundamentally, you feel so alone, so profoundly alone. It's hugely isolating. And it's interesting the way when you mention the word danger, but the one place I've felt comfortable was putting pushing myself physically and putting myself in physical danger. That's so interesting. And weirdly, that's when I felt safest. So what that one out, Julia Samuels. That makes perfect sense. Because your deepest, darkest fear that's also filled with shame is I'm not good enough. I'm not lovable enough. And if I really show myself, I'll be profoundly rejected. But putting yourself out of a comfort zone, which isn't to do with other people's response to you, but is to do with your courage and your bravery, when you step into that zone, like swimming in cold water, going on programs with millions of unknown people watching you, you are pushing yourself and saying to yourself, well, I am strong. I can do this. So you, that feeds you for a bit. But the trouble with it, it doesn't go to the heart of you. Yeah, that's absolutely right. But it does make some flipping good <laughs> stories, let's be honest. And your book has amazing stories and people. And people. And yeah, and it is. It's like, you know, with Strictly was one example. And, you know, as I was doing, although I knew I was humiliating myself in front of millions of people, I, at the back of my mind, I was thinking, this is going to be great copy. This is going to be great copy. I was so, so kind of calculated. But also at the beginning, you had this kind of belief that you were going to be really good. <laughs> that sounds so mean. <laughs> no, so, but I did. I remember I got back. So after that, so I, got, I had never watched the show. Can I just say for someone who's been broadcasting and all of it, yeah. it's a bit of a rookie era just, just there. But that, that fits with the whole... I'm getting excited at myself, at my Sherlock Holmes self, yeah. is that your, your, your oh, capacity for denial and not looking at what's going to be difficult played out in every aspect of your life. Anybody, if they were said yes to a show, would look at the show and see what they were saying yes to. But this denial mm. played out 360 degrees, so you just didn't even look. No, I didn't even look. I went in there. I mean, it was a major rookie error. Anyway, I got put with Anton and that God who's remained a dear friend and I love him deeply. But he um, he said to me after we were kicked out first, he said to me, you know, I can tell if if someone can dance as soon as they walk through the door. And as soon as you walk through the door, I knew there was no hope. Okay. So he was acting too. He was acting too. Anyway, so he, he was so enthusiastic. I mean, God bless him. He was just so nurturing and encouraging and enthusiastic. We spent many hours lunching and eating food and talking. We barely did any rehearsals at all because there was no point. I didn't think that at the time. I thought we were working. So I was exhausted. You know, we've done three hours. I then found out that there were everyone else was doing 14 hours a day. And I was thinking, you know, I really must be quite good. I don't need so many hours. <laughs> the delusion plays on. <laughs> the delusion. Then I went back home. And I remember saying to Steen, my husband, you know what, Steenie, I think I found something that I'm really good at. And he went, really? And I went, yeah. I really do. I found something, you know, ballroom dancing. I can really do it. This anyway, is my shtick. This is two days later. I come back having told Anton, well, you know, I think we can do a showy end of some kind. I think you need to kind of, you know, throw me across the floor, go back to Steam. You know what, Steenie? I think we could win. Wind the movie forward to the live shows. And all you see is this orange sack of potatoes being logged <laughs> across the ballroom floor. And me coming out like Ava Perron in her death tour with sort of rigor mortis, so seven years into her death tour. And, um, I mean, what can you do but laugh? But it was 
excruciating. It was so terrifying, the whole thing. But as with everything in my life, I look at the positives that came out of it. And I made amazing friends. It was an incredible thing to witness. But yeah, you're so right. It's like, let's just go in, bulldoze in. Don't know. If you find out anything about it, you're going to get more frightened. It's like going blind. And that's a lot of how I've conducted my life. And so if that is a micro of the macro, don't look because I'll be too scared. And have also some kind of actually founded in in reality to optimism that you talk about kind of not knowing yourself and hiding yourself but there are qualities and energies and capacities that you have that have really worked for you despite having these things that block you having a death wish yeah (laughs) tell me about the death wish well like kind of putting myself in situations like that where i die by a thousand cuts in front of 13 million people and I guess alcoholism is a slow death. Yeah, of course it is. And it very genuinely is a slow death. Yeah, As we know, it's a deadly disease. But I, I can't really compare, well, with, with my layman brain, I can't compare the two. Because when you're drinking, you believe that it's helping until it stops. But I didn't think that Strictly was going to help per se, not consciously. Um, But yeah, no, that's very interesting about doing dangerous things to feel better about oneself. I'm strong. I'm strong. That's what it is. I'm going to do that because I'm strong. And you are, though. There's truth in it. Yeah, no, I am. Yeah, yeah. A lot of that comes from having a mum with bipolar disorder because you, you know, as children, and all children are the same, we have to learn to cope and we adapt. And that can breed many different things, many negative things, but it can also breed tremendous strength. The strength, I guess, is that you had to learn to manage on your own because you didn't have a safe place to go back to in in the kind of arms of your mum. I I had the kind of complicated relationship with your mum, which I don't know if it's changed through writing your book in that there was a bit of you that really was disgusted by her because and felt ashamed of her and then had this excruciating aspect when you kind of saw yourself doing the same things like lying, drinking and not wanting to be the same mother mm. and this idea of kind of what gets passed down what is genetic? What is behavioural? You kind of wrestled with a bit in the book, didn't you? Yeah, I, and then that was something I, I, I consciously want. Well, that's one of the reasons I, I started looking back at my life, was I wanted to know if I could have avoided becoming an alcoholic. You know, I look back at my mum and I don't, you know, she was incredibly loving and I wasn't actually... I never showed that I was ashamed of her. People used to come and stay, and I wasn't ashamed of her. It wasn't, we, I was very open about her illness because no one else was being open about it. My father was in denial. And I guess that's going back to feel the fear and do it anyway. I'm going to go full, full in. It's so interesting, this. Yeah, I've like chucked my mother forward metaphorically. Here she is. I'm not the, I'm not going to hide anything. She's here. She has an illness. And it's the same thing as going to, you know, off into the Arctic to do something insane. It's the same as doing Strictly. It's the same as all these things. And I, that's how I deal with it my, about myself. I'm so open because maybe it's another form of danger. I don't know. That would make sense that the seeds of the choices and decisions and the ways you've thrown yourself into danger were early when you wanted to be honest. But there's some difficult enmeshment, isn't there, where there's real honesty and then hiding dishonesty and lies. Yeah, it's sort of like hiding behind bravado almost. Yeah. It's by allowing my friends, that sounds terrible, but but when my friends, you know, knowing my mother, being aware of her illness... I was somehow hiding behind that. I must have been. It wasn't a truthful honesty. 
That's absolutely right. And one of the things that I'm beginning to understand, it's taken me like three over three decades as a therapist, is that in the end, even just partial lies, but certainly lies, are the things that block us engaging with life and in connection, and that we need connection most. But the truths we don't tell ourselves, the truths we hide from ourselves and then conceal in brilliantly kind of creative ways Mm. are the things that do us harm over time. Mm. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I think that's why. So it seems that so many creative people have addiction problems or mental health issues. And the more creative people are, the more it seems from all my very dear friends that were very creative and that we're all in recovery now. We've all gone into recovery. Thank goodness. You know, I think that's what's been well documented about the creative mind and the association with mental health disorders. You know, that's something to think about. It's something like the depth of the pain is equal to the depth of the creativity to camouflage the pain, something like that. Yeah. What has helped you? I mean, did you know what you were hiding for ages? When did you begin to recognise your kind of bravado was was an armour? And then what helped you begin to slowly take off the armour? First time I recognised my bravado was an armour was writing this book. Seriously? Yeah. So that was like two years ago, you were 58. Yeah. So, so, yeah, I started writing my book. And I think that's why. Do you know what the impulse to write the book came from? It came from really looking at why I was an alcoholic and could I have avoided it. So it came from that. So you knew at that point you were an alcoholic and you were sober. Oh, yeah, that was two years, no, two and a half years ago. So I, I knew that. And I just, and then I went public about being an alcoholic and there was such an overwhelming response. So I, I thought, okay, let's look at this a little bit more closely and then I went public about it and then I got contacted by various publishers to write my journey to sobriety which I didn't really want to do because I didn't feel equipped to do that you know it's a huge responsibility to write something like that and then I realized that actually my life had been quite extraordinary sort of female Forrest Gump and witnessing a lot of social history in there a lot of historic moments that I witnessed and then yeah through writing this book I've learned that I have not been true to myself for most of my life, but inadvertently and somehow, thank someone somewhere, the angels, I'm now living the life that I was meant to, which is working because I get a lot of my self-esteem from working. I have a need of respect from other people and being a working mother, being at home, being a parent, being a wife, being a cook, doing the washing, doing the driving. That's my natural state, and I love it. And that's like your mum, too. Yeah, so I've become the mum my mum couldn't be, yeah. So I'm past the mercantile classes, I work, you know, I make money. Like your dad. Like my dad. And his business brain, you did unbelievably well with Trini and Susanna. Well, most of that was Trini, but yeah, no, I got a bit of a business brain. But um, and yeah, no, that's true, I've become what they probably would have been had they had the tools. I just want to say a quick thank you to our sponsor for this episode, Youth and Earth. Youth and Earth are a supplement company designed to help us all feel younger for longer. Their product addresses the causes of aging at a cellular level and help us to maintain and sustain a fit and active lifestyle. Their NMN delayed release capsules are one of the staples of my anti-aging, much-needed arsenal. I really love them. They're entirely natural, they boost my energy levels and work to promote cell vitality throughout my body. I feel amazing with them. So if you're like me and looking to slow down the aging process, then I encourage you all to take advantage of a very generous 25% off when using the code Julia25 on your first order. Head to www.youthandearth.com now and give your body every opportunity to feel more youthful. I'll just say it again, 
www.youthandearth.com. But you've pulled from both of them, your mother and your father. Mm. Yeah, that's so interesting. I am. That's th- another light bulb moment. <laughs> jube jube. Oh my gosh, that's so interesting. That's it. And I've fucking cracked it. I do. I think I've cracked it. I think I'm there. I think I'm so much more present. I'm there for my kids. I'm there for my husband. I'm a much better, less sort of passive aggressive wife. Um, And it's not a question of being happier, but it's a question of being more aware. It's a question of being more more yourself. Yeah, I'm more myself. And I'm I'm learning, you know, I find it very difficult. I don't know if any of your listeners feel this, but I find it very difficult to be completely myself in front of my children because I think they'll judge me. And that's, a, you know, that's something I'm literally just thinking about now. And the people I feel most comfortable being absolutely myself with are all my gay best friends. That is so interesting. Mm. So there's something about loving your children so much, being invested in them so much Mm. is also incredibly risky. The risk, it's risk. That's the word, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, they might abandon me. It's the abandonment. If they know the real me, they're not going to like what they see and they're going to abandon me. Like your mother did. Yeah. That's a big thing. It's a big thing, yeah. I can feel it kind of slightly percolating through your system, like... No, it is. It is. It's kind of like, wow, that's quite a realization. When you really kind of nail the truth, it's um, extremely powerful. And uh, you're right, I'm sort of fizzing. It's like I've, you know, taken something wonderful and but a bit out of control. The kind of power of seeing something that you've seen for decades and then seeing it in a way that releases you, I guess. Mm. And my guesses and my invitation would be to ask your children. What, how do you see me? Or who do you think I am? Isn't that a bit self-indulgent? No. When they just say, oh, mom, it's all about you. <laughs> I don't know what they'll say. <laughs> Having written my book about every family has a story, mm. the thing that I'm recognising is that when we can have a cohesive collective narrative about each of us in this family rather than having competing narratives Mm. and kind of feel fully known with all of our good, bad, smelly, stinky, Mm. fabulous, successful bits. And sometimes having a successful parent is difficult. Of course, yeah. I mean, I I feel I'm very open with my children and I speak about, you know, my alcoholism, I speak about my mom. They're very open with me too, but I don't feel... I can be the side of me which is free. It's quite quite wild, quite filthy, you know, filthy sense of humour, quite an idiot sometimes. I don't feel I can do that because I'm their mum. So I guess maybe the side I can't feel, I can't feel I, or that I don't want to show is how I am with friends because I'm not their friend, I'm their mother. Yeah, and that's a really important boundary that I think quite a lot of us miss Mm. is that you are a role model as their mum and you don't want to be the the wild Susanna. Mm. So is that why you love your gay friends? That's why I love my gay friends. Yeah. And that's why they love me. What is it about that? I feel free with them. I feel that I can flirt. I can say anything it doesn't matter what it is and I don't I don't feel judged at all I just feel warmth and love and yeah it's it's that freedom where I don't feel judged not being judged is such a big thing Mm. isn't it it's such an enormous thing and in some ways it also sounds like you don't feel judged by strangers like your audiences no not at all you feel known by them in some ways yeah and with your family you're probably not judged, but you really fear being judged. Yeah. And I assume, because I'm judging myself within the family unit, like I said before, I assume they're doing the same, which they're probably not. So it might be worth checking it out. Mm. <laughs> oh, yeah. 
in what it <laughs> might be. But, but what do I say? What would be the opening? Give me a little, a little, the question to ask, the one line question to ask. Okay. Well, let's work out the question together. As a family, when we have kind of difficult or sort of big conversations, we always do it on a walk. Yeah, that, I remember you said that to me before. Yeah. Well, that's never going to happen, getting them all to go on a walk together at the same time. Okay. Okay. So do you do anything like puzzles together or is there anything that slightly distracts you where you're not eyeballing each other, cooking in the kitchen or? Yeah, I mean, it's quite rare now, you know, because they've basically all left home. Um, and yeah, we do do puzzles and we do play, you know, parlour games and cards and sit around the table. And So, I mean, maybe it's sit around the table time. But the kind of thing I'm thinking about is just being really honest, which is something like, you know, through writing my book, through having the conversations following your book, I've begun to kind of recognise that I'm frightened of fully showing all of myself to you because I'm frightened you're going to judge me. Does that sound right? Yeah, sounds totally right. So it's the truth. It's the truth. And it starts with I. It's not saying, do you judge me? Yeah. It's owning, I am frightened Yeah. that you're judging me. Yeah. Like I judge my mother, like she probably judged her mother. Yeah. Well, that's exactly it. That's, again, that's another ka Yeah, I judge my parents. I love my parents, despite everything. I was proud of them in many ways. But that's very interesting. And I think all of us judge our parents and our children definitely judge us. But I think we can hold so many competing feelings with love at the same time. Absolutely. Like, you know, where we hate, where we love most, we hate most. Mm. And we have our greatest fear and we make our deepest mistakes and they preoccupy us. Loving our children is the hardest thing. Because loving them so much is also unbearable because A, we can't control their happiness. We can't bear it when they suffer. But also we really want them to, to respect and love us. Mm. Yeah. And it's very painful when that doesn't happen. But I think, yeah, I do believe that my relationship as it stands with them now, it wouldn't seem out of the blue for me to ask that question you know, at all, they would, it, it would resonate and, and they would be, they'd think, yeah, okay, let's talk about it because I'm open and they're open. Exactly. But, but and you modelling that openness is how they will be learned to be different, how to be open with themselves, mm. how they will be open with their kids. Mm. I mean, they're so self-aware. I mean, it's extraordinary. And I love the fact, you know, again, in the book, I write about, being, well, ready for absolutely nothing, but that included having no opinion because one's opinion wasn't, not that it wasn't valued, but no one was interested. No one was interested, no one was interested in my mother's opinion or any, on anything. My opinion didn't count. But what I love about this generation is that they all have opinions and they have very strong opinions. They do not follow each other like little sheep. They will sit around the table and they will argue against each other and they will fight for what they believe in verbally. And to me, that's just so impressive because it's not how I was brought up. And it's confidence, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. That they validate their opinion. Yeah. That within themselves, which allows them to have the confidence to fight for them around the kitchen table. Absolutely. Yeah. Or with their friends. They're not scared to think differently, dress differently, choose different jobs to everyone else they're very independent and for that I am you know so proud that Steve and I brought up children who are like that and they got that from you too yeah so for all of the other stuff they got that from you I mean you can't just take the bad stuff from your children no and say that's your that's down to you 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 have to take the good stuff too oh yeah I do I know you know what the one thing I do know that I'm pretty good at is being a mum that's so good. I do know that, yeah. Is it, what's that like saying that? I, one thing I know I'm good at is being a mum. Relief. It's relief. And it was quite funny. I, I, one of the most extraordinary and 
exciting things I ever heard. And this is going to sound so ridiculous. I Trini told me about this psychic woman who is meant to be incredible. And I did a call with her. And she was extraordinary. I didn't say who I was. I didn't say my name. She had no idea about my background. She named my three children, Joe, Esme, and Cece. Wow. It actually named them. She described their characters down to a T. Um, she got that Steen was half Danish and half Australian. I mean, it was, it was freaky. But her opening sentence to me was, my American, my, you're a phenomenal mother, aren't you? And that was like, the most fantastic thing I've ever heard. To me, that meant more than anything. That's an Oscar, a BAFTA, everything. It is. Yeah. Yeah. So that was great. That's so lovely. You're good at loving, Suze. Really good at loving. Yeah, no, I love to love. I keep answering your questions. It's just really annoying and very bad as a therapist. No, it's not. So kind of reflecting on your book and what you discovered in yourself through your book, and maybe from this conversation, which is a, a snippet of it, what is the learning that if people listening, they want to kind of take something that you've learned that they can begin to use for themselves, what would that be? I think it's, we are our own worst critics. We are, it is, we are our own worst enemies. And don't assume that what you feel about yourself is what other people think. They, they have no idea. It's also that thing of what other people think of you is none of your business. And it isn't because it's, that's their thoughts. It's not you know, what you feel and think yourself. So I think that's some, something. I think curiosity can get you through so much in life, whether you've had an illness or someone you know has had an illness, one is you know, mental illness, whatever it is. If you're curious and you look around you and you find out more, you find out the emotional effects. Maybe it's around whatever is afflicting someone you love or whether it's work. It's, I think remaining curious can take you away from things that might be pa are painful, but in a very positive way because you're learning at the same time and you're growing. So curiosity is for me is the most important thing. And, and this book, I was curious. Once I started on this little journey, I was really curious to find out and remember what my life had been because I'd never looked back, ever. And in a way, that curiosity, when you could turn it not onto projects like incredibly successful Trini and Susanna or even raising a family or getting a husband or all the things you talk about in the book of David Lindley and all of that, when you could turn that gaze of your own curiosity on yourself, you could begin to have a different relationship with yourself. Exactly right. And so I hope that comes through in the book. It might not be obvious. Yeah. So I think it will, hopefully it will encourage other people to do the same and, and it will be relatable. Yes, I had a very privileged upbringing. But I've been through all the same shit as, you know, a lot of people. But I was, you know, so blessed in many ways and privileged. Um, but it's been interesting how people from all walks of life have, mess, you know, contacted me or who I've met who just said, I just get it. I, I, I feel less alone after reading your book. But I've also laughed out loud. And... Um, giving a lightness to difficult subjects to tackle. And actually, that's one of the things that I wanted to do with this podcast is have difficult conversations that don't have to be heavy and unbearable to hear mm. so that we begin to have them because otherwise we're too scared to have them because they look too big. But actually, you could have a lot of light and dark in a conversation and the light enables you to have the dark. Mm. Mm. I want to know, well, this might be very difficult, but it can be a broad, you know, generic answer, but how having an alcoholic mother will affect your children. So basically a mother who lied, who lied about her drinking, who was out of control, not terribly, but I wonder how that affects a child to have an alcoholic parent who's come through the other side. So, I mean, obviously there's a, a huge answer 
And I think you, in this conversation, have given us that lived experience of having an alcoholic mother, which is this feeling of a, a kind of reaching for connection, for love, for vibrancy, and being pushed back with a kind of shrill note of a smart dress or mm. bouffant hair. And so this constant kind of, I mean, this is too simplistic because it's so many other hues, many rejections. Mm. And every one of those fragment your sense of self. Mm. Because as a child, as a four-year-old, you go to reach to your mum to kind of have a hug or mm. be a bit scared or mm. dare to do something with or show her your puzzle or your drawing. And if every one of those encounters... yeah. There's a kind of fake, oh, well done, darling, but it, it doesn't sink in you. It falls off yeah. you. Like the vodka fell down her throat. It doesn't build that secure sense of yourself that has secure attachment to others. And that's what we need is that sense of safety and predictability. And the mm. other terrible thing about alcoholism is the unpredictability. I don't know which version, and you talked about that in the book. I didn't know which version of her I was going to get. And your dad was codependent, so he wasn't actively drinking, but he did all the behaviours. He was a dry drunk in many ways. Mm, that's very interesting. I mean, I do remember with my mum consciously thinking, I'm never going to be like her, which such sort of classic trope. Even when I was drinking, I never thought, oh, I've become my mother. Never once. I didn't put the two together at all. That's the terrifying thing. I was a special, a special and different drinker. I didn't even, my mother didn't even cross my mind. That capacity for denial as an addict, whatever it is, whether it's gambling, sex, drugs, being famous, working, the story you tell yourself is the person you become. And the story you tell yourself is, I'm special, I'm fine, I'm doing okay. And it's a, a carapace that means that you're crumbling and lonely and chilly inside. Mm. But what you said too, there's one word you, you, used which is vital and feeling vital and that's what I felt when I was drinking it misconception but it vitalized me and that's something I've never thought about before that's you know you you kind of look at it's to hide feelings it's I never really thought that about myself but definitely that word vitalize I I think it was to vitalize myself to not be so dead and I'm having lights go zing in me and we're coming to the end. But kind of psychologically and psychoanalytically, the mm. dead mother breastfeeding, and you can talk about this in every kind of parental interaction from breastfeeding. If you have a dead mother, there's a deadness in the child mm. that is constantly looking for life, for vitality, for being alive. And you, you will overperform in order to get that sense of vitality. But when you don't have the knowledge of the deadness that it is trying to um, revitalize, it just goes to a little pocket in you rather than all of you. Does that make sense? So true. Yeah, complete sense. And I just feel even more devastated. You've done a really shit job because I feel even more self-loathing after that but that that is true you know and it's very important to face these things and because it's funny my youngest daughter well she was the one who was you know bore witness to it more than any of the others and I'm going to have this conversation with her because it's so important to acknowledge it and but it, with specific questions and really listen which I do try and do now and I'm saying this with full open-hearted, massive confidence is mm. it's never too late to have a happy childhood and it's never too late to repair the injuries from the past. You can't go back and undo them, but by being honest, by acknowledging your, your um, contribution, by not defending against it, you can have amazing healing for everybody mm. in the family. Yeah, and I've seen this. It's beginning to take a long time, but the trust is coming, is there again. And 
And it's wonderful to see them grow with that, the fertilizer of love. A genuine love, true, authentic. Genuine love. That is a wonderful place to stop. Thank you, Susanna Constantine. Thank you, Julia Samuel. You are amazing. And I love you dearly. One of the very special things about this podcast is that at the end of every episode, I get the opportunity to reflect on the conversation with my two psychotherapist daughters, Sophie and Emily. Sophie is an adult psychotherapist and Emily is a child psychotherapist. And as we all specialize in different forms of therapy, it is really interesting to see what their takeaways are what their insights are, and if they think there was anything that I could have said or done differently. You'll quickly learn not all therapists agree on everything. But let's hear what their thoughts are this week. Hello, Sophie and Emily. Third time lucky. We've tried doing this um, recording a few times where we were sorted by my laptop not working, by children um, being ill, <laughs> you being ill. And that's, that's a really loud sniff. <laughs> it was. was. I apologise for the snot situation. Sorry, everyone. It's it's Sorry. winter. Yeah. <laughs> um, but we are going to talk about Susanna Constantine and the wonderful conversation I had with her and what your kind of first thoughts are. It was such a sort of open, energetic conversation, wasn't it? It was lovely to listen to. And I think one of the things that it made me think about was the sort of liberation of t- of being able to take responsibility for whatever's going on in your life. Talking about denial or when you have an addiction, how it can often feel very scary, the idea of, you know, she talked about projecting onto her husband some of the things she was struggling with and how when someone's in a state of addiction that's so common and it's so hard to confront the thing that's going on. Sometimes the idea of, you know, looking at the monster under the bed is worse, actually so much less scary, actually. That take like, what I could hear from her, I suppose, was the empowerment that comes from being able to to make sense of all of this stuff, to unravel it by writing the book, how much she'd learnt and how I think Sometimes when people are experiencing addiction, you know, it comes up, well, actually in um, AA, the serenity prayer. Um, Except the things I can, cannot yes. change, the courage to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference. Very good, Emma. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the kind of liberation of picking up the stone of your underbelly where all the shame and the dark hides and you kind of work so hard to protect, like her mum did and in a way her dad did, um, and then she did. And yet, when you do actually put down all those defences and performances, the sort of level of connection is so powerful. And, I mean, linked to that, I, for me, was I've known Susanna for decades. Uh, um, she was incredibly generous to me with Child Bereavement UK. And as Susanna and Trini, she did a lot of kind of charitable things for us. And so I was also quite interested in in the kind of quality of our relationship that often I have very deep conversations with people I've never met, I have on this podcast. And I was wondering, was there something different with someone who I've known personally for so long? I definitely felt like you were quite punchy. (laughs) Like (laughs) I really noticed sort of towards the end when you sort of asked her something about like, how did it feel to sort of become your mum? Um, I think that probably that sounded quite a punchy question to, to the outside listener. And so was it that the sort of comfort with her and the knowledge of her that made you feel you could kind of go there? I mean, what's so interesting, you asking me that question that when I listened back, I didn't even notice that that was punchy. Like you, you saying it to me now <laughs> has gone, oh, God, that really was quite punchy. I mean, I think as a therapist, it's a really difficult balance between pushing on someone's edge of um what is it the edge of their tolerance yeah Yeah. the window of of tolerance and kind of underdoing it where they just stay the same and pushing them out of their comfort zone where they kind of begin to interrogate what is going on and if you push too far you flip their defenses back up 
No, completely. My worst kind of therapist is a therapist that just goes, Hmm, interesting. Mm. Like the image I think lots of people have in their mind of a therapist is someone who just goes, hmm, that sounds really painful. And there is a role for that. There is definitely a place for like, that sounds painful. There is also a place for challenge. And my best therapists for myself, like the therapists that I have seen, have definitely been the ones that have also challenged me. And I guess, even though obviously this wasn't therapy in the traditional sense, maybe that's what you were doing without even noticing it. Mm. I think that's true. And also the co-creation that happens in a relationship, right? That's a lot of where the creativity happens. It's you and them and what happens between you and them, you know. Um, and that's the third piece. Bringing yourself. I think bringing yourself, when it works, there's underlying trust. I think she felt I was with her and not digging in her or attacking her. And she has a particular phase in her life now. And I, I know we're generalizing, we should be generalizing, but maybe this is true of people when they really kind of open themselves up, that there's a huge kind of learning curious mind that wants to know herself now. And that that's very energetic and writing the book or people journaling or people being honest with themselves there's a kind of zealousness that's excited by, oh my goodness, I didn't even think about that about myself, which is when therapy can really work fast, faster than you expect. And sometimes clients go through kind of 20 years of stuff in like four sessions and other people can go to different pace because they're not quite there. And I guess a lot of things in therapy is about timing. Mm. Yeah. And I think that was the sort of lovely, refreshing thing to hear her <laughs> when you asked her when she sort of started realizing these things about herself. And she was like, oh, like when I started writing the book. And <laughs> um, <laughs> I think that for me, that sort of shows two things. One, like it's not too late for anybody to start thinking about themselves and parts of themselves they haven't thought about before. And secondly, just because you haven't done that yet doesn't mean you haven't lived a really full and rich life right? Just because you have a, a phase in your life that might happen later, or you have this sort of phase of self-discovery, it doesn't mean that the part of your life that came before didn't count just because you didn't have that self-knowledge. Because she obviously has had this sort of wonderful, rich life. It also makes me think, Mum, when you were talking about the, the energy of the session and of her at this time, and you had a bit of an interesting conversation I thought about beating back deadness and aliveness and vitality. And she talked about going into danger. And I was thinking, oh, also in a way, you talked about danger in a slightly different context, but I thought about it as I think often people can seek out danger also to feel alive when they feel a deadness inside, which may not be her case at all. But she also talked about her mum being dead before she died. Yeah. Or Esther Perel sometimes talks about people having affairs as not really necessarily anything to do with their relationship, but as a kind of hunger for feeling alive when things feel repetitive or boring. Um, or if you're in a numbed out state for your feelings and how alive she sounds on that and how when you do connect, then sometimes you don't need to self-medicate or to seek danger in the same ways to feel alive because connection is what is enlivening, isn't it? <laughs> I completely agree. And I think the other thing about danger seeking is that it's also a well, what if, like what if I fall off the horse that's going really fast? Like what, like there's almost a sort of a nihilistic mm. thing about it too. But, and then I didn't, and then I survived. Mm. And like the adrenaline of that, I think can be very addictive too. But I think it's coming from the same place that you were talking about. So mm. often there's two sides of the same coin. There's the deadening that is also killing you slowly, like alcoholism or drug addiction or gambling or work. Mm -hmm. And you're doing it to block the dark side. But of course, blocking the dark side also blocks your vitality because it blocks everything. It doesn't just block the dark. And is the underlying fear of actually not having control of all of our feelings that people want to block? Or is it just that they want to block the dark side? I think it's just a fear of, yeah, a fear of the feelings. But also I think the thing about alcoholism or any kind of addiction that links very closely with this kind of 
dangerous, potentially self-destructive behavior is I just don't want to feel what I feel underneath. It's like, I, I, I just need to not feel it. And I can feel something different by doing something very extreme, whatever it is. For her, it was all these physically extreme things, but there's all sorts of other ways of taking risks. For me, I think it comes from a place of not wanting to feel pain. Hmm. And, and also, to some extent, it can come from a lack of self-worth, right? That, that, like a willingness to, to put your life on the line, whether it's a, through an addictive behavior or a dangerous behavior. There's a part of you that's like, doesn't hold your life as, uh, yeah, sufficiently, pre- as sufficiently precious. I, mean, I also thought it was very interesting what she said about feeling like she wasn't herself or least honest or something, she said, with her own children and most comfortable with her gay friends. And I just thought that was such an interesting way of That's what I wanted to ask mum. Like, I don't know, but me with my children, I I guess I'm a certain way. I'm not like all the parts of myself with my children, but I don't feel like I'm not honest with them. I just feel like as a mother, I'm slightly different as I would be out with my friends or... So don't... I'm not quite sure. What did you think, mum? Are you honest with us? (laughs) I really think I am. I mean, I I definitely have things that I don't talk to you about, which I talk to adults about. I'm not your adult, but people the same age as me, (laughs) because because I don't really like the idea of having your children as your best friend. I always think in the end, it's a mother-daughter relationship. So I think that (laughs) runs through our relationship. Do you fear being judged by us in a a particular way? 100%. More so than being judged generally. Being judged or criticised by my children (laughs) would hurt me about a million times more than anybody else. There's no question because I love you most. Yes. So I care most about what you think. And also because I kind of trust your integrity and wisdom. If you really criticize me, it's like, oh my God, this part of me that I didn't even know I had. And so, yes, there's a, you know, there's a real fear. I think it's so interesting about the kind of power relationship with children. In some ways, children have enormous power over their parents, but also parents have enormous power with their children. And it, I think it, get, it kind of switches around who holds it and who doesn't. Well, I was thinking it's interesting because I think we hear generally out in the world more about the kind of impact of being criticised by your parents, right? The sort of how powerful that can be or the judgment of your parents, or the co- sort of conditionality of their love, um, which is hugely powerful. Um, I suppose I think I've only so far in my life thought about it in the context of, oh my God, what are my children going to hate me for when they become teenagers? Or when I do something like, oh no, that's one of the things that they're going to hate me for. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's such a brave thing for her to speak to. The fear of like your children judging you. And I agree, I don't think many people talk about it that much. And until she said it, I don't think I'd really thought about it that much. Um, I mean, partly maybe because my children are really small um but I do think it's a really powerful thing but I also think that as a child even as an adult child I'm not sure you're sort of fully aware of that power necessarily I think you still feel like a child in the relationship with your parents quite often on the other side of that I think I have come to you for advice for things which and I really listen to your advice because I think it's very valuable you know I ask you stuff don't I like, what do you think about this? Mm. But I know I hate it when you criticise me. <laughs> really hate it. <laughs> I don't like it when my children criticise me. Yeah. I don't like it when my children criticise yeah. me and they're like three and one and yeah. a half. Yesterday I said to my son, who is three, I was like, no, I love you, Zachy. And he goes, well, I don't like you. <laughs> I was like, all right. Stab me in the heart, won't you? <laughs> it's like, that's okay. I have it with my children because now Lyra's six. One thing that I'm, I'm particularly bad at is about being late. I get incredibly stressed out and therefore quite mean. I don't know where that comes from. That point. And so then trying to repair that, I've been saying to Lyra, you can tell me when I'm being like that. So then that's what she then does. So she's like, calm down, mama. Stop being your rushy self. It's okay. We're not going to be late. You always say it's going to be late. And then we're never late. And there's part of you when she first says it, where I just want to go. Ah! Ah! 
like enraged by being called out. Oh my God. So, I mean, should we end on this memory, which was when I was in the hall in, in London with you, shouting at you because we were going to be late for the traffic driving down to the country, I suddenly had a picture of my dad standing in the hall, shouting at her, saying, children, we're going to be late. And then I thought, oh, my God. And I inherited it. I've transmitted it. All right, my safe name. Thank you so much. Thank you to everybody who's listening. I hope you really enjoy the conversation, that you rate and review it and maybe send it to a friend if there's something in it that you think is interesting. Subscribe if you want to get it every week. And we look forward to you joining us next week. Many thanks. Bye.